Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Simon Taylor, and today we are talking about what comes next for anti-money laundering. Anti-money laundering, or AML for short, is a big subject. Oh my goodness, it's a huge subject. So we are going to unpack what does it mean, where's it going, and what about sanctions? What is financial crime? What's counter-terrorist financing? And hopefully explore a little bit of where we might be able to do better as an industry. A recent study from Credas Technologies analyzing OECD data found that the top two countries for the amount of money laundered each year are the United States and the United Kingdom. The UK sees on average 88 billion pounds or about 100 million dollars laundered annually. And that figure reaches 215 billion pounds or around 250 billion US dollars in the United States. This makes up a sizable chunk of the 1.8 trillion pounds or 2.1 trillion US dollars laundered globally, a staggering 3% of global domestic product. So today we're looking at how do we keep up with this sizable task of dealing with money laundering? What stands in the way of fintech businesses, financial services companies, and everybody? And can the problem be solved? So to get started, I'm not alone. I'm joined by a panel of incredible guests. Uh, making a debut, I'm joined by Jessica Kath, who's head of financial crime project delivery at FinTrail. Jessica, thank you for joining us. Uh, great to have you with us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, it's an incredibly long title, um, but basically I've been at uh, Fintrail for almost two years now. Uh, Fintrail are a, an anti-financial crime consultancy. Uh, they've been around for around six, seven years, um, and we primarily work with fintechs, um, obviously in just the anti-financial crime space. So it's super exciting to be here, and we have you know deal with all different types of challenges. Um, and we're increasingly working with traditional institutions, reg techs, lots of different people that want to take a brand new approach to solving all of these kind of financial crime challenges. And in my role, I kind of head up the core consulting team to solve all those challenges. So designing frameworks, assuring frameworks, reconfiguring frameworks, solving all the problems. So hopefully I can add something today in the conversation. Solving all of the problems. I'm all of the problems. <laughs> I'm so here <laughs> for that. Uh, also making a FinTech Insider debut is Adam Gable, who's Product Director of Financial Crime and Treasury Risk over at Temenos. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, Adam. Uh, remind us a little bit what you do at Temenos. Uh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, I'm Product Director for Financial Crime, Treasury, Financial Risk Management at Temenos. Uh, my overarching responsibility is ensuring our products and coverage in this area remains relevant, competitive, delivers customer value. Probably the bit my bosses like most is that uh, I grow market share. For those who don't know Temenos, it's uh, probably for context, just worth pointing out, you know, we frame ourselves as the world's number one banking software company. This is based on a number of metrics, but I think it's 41 of the top 50 banks run Temenos software. We have 3,000 customers across 150 countries. Um, I think that puts us in quite a privileged position in as much as, you know, we get to see a real cross-section of the industry and talk to uh, lots of customers with different uh, problems and challenges. Um, hopefully, I can add some value today. Uh, all adding value, I dig it. Uh, and last but by no means least, also making a debut, is Joe Robinson, who's co-founder and CEO over at Hummingbird. How are you doing, Joe? Tell us about Hummingbird. Doing well, thank you. Um, joining you from Seattle, Washington this morning, where it's very early. Um, I'm Joe Robinson, CEO of Hummingbird. We're a platform for investigating financial crime, and we work with some of the top institutions in, in the world today in banking, payments, cryptocurrency, 
we are a platform for actually doing the work of compliance investigations. So excited to be here. Perfect. Thank you, Joe. All right. Well, let's dive right in and let's start uh, looking at AML itself, anti-money laundering. Anything with a three-letter acronym that sounds jargony uh, often gets disassociated from its real-world consequences. Adam, do you want to start me out with what are the real-world consequences of money laundering? How does this impact person on the street, businesses, the the society, the economy, and everything? Yeah, listen, I, I, it's, it's, it's a great question. And in your opening, you said it's, it's a broad subject. The fundamentals, I, I think, are as broad as societal, as you say. The first AML anti-money laundering regulation came out, I think, circa 40 years ago now, when the world was a lot simpler. But the premise of that regulation was to prevent, you know, governments setting out to prevent the financial system being used um, for illicit purposes, essentially. And I think, you know, in my mind, I see it as, as kind of a two-directional thing. One, you know, you spoke about sanctions and the idea of sanctions is that the financial system isn't used to process funds and, and, and pass them on to people that may use the funds um, in, a, in, in a legitimate or an illegal way. More, more frequently, you know, uh, sanctions are used as foreign policy, um, even to the point of, you know, uh, people that break um, environmental policies uh, might be on a sanctions list. And then, then the other the other direction of that traffic, if, if you like, is criminals uh, have illegitimate funds that gained from uh, illicit means. And the purpose of anti-money laundering is to protect, prevent the financial system being used, being, uh, processing those um, those gains. And and what criminals are essentially trying to do is put a distance between the illegitimate source of those funds and make them legitimate so that, that those funds can then be processed. And that's where AML regulation comes in. As I said, government set about putting in the first legislation some 40-odd years ago now. That that net has been uh, increasingly broadened. And, and now the task uh, falls on regulators to implement those policies and then on banks uh, themselves to comply to that regulation. And, and what we know is that um, if they don't comply, there, there are heavy, heavy kind of repercussions, uh, big penalties, reputational damage. Um, I'm based in the UK. Um, it's one of these things where you never need to, need to look far back in the news to see uh, a failing in this area. And I was a bit worried kind of joining this this call because it feels, AML feels like an uphill battle uh, and doom and gloom. And, and, you know, we're here to talk about um, the future and how we can make it better. But just going back to that point, you really don't need to look far back to see, um, you know, failings in this area. HSBC were fined at the end of last year uh, for, for, for AML failings. NatWest, the first of its kind, was taken uh, for legal prosecution by the Financial Conduct Authority, um, the first of its kind, and actually where uh, the FCA is sharp in their teeth and the, 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 the potential is that bank execs can actually now be put in prison for failings in this area. Um, so, so, so the repercussions are huge financially, reputationally, and, and I think the last thing I would say on the subject is, you know, as I said, Terminus, we talk to banks, you know, we often want to get under their skin and understand what they're trying to achieve, and and more and more what we're seeing is, um, you know, the ethics of banking come into the foreground, particularly as you know customers are associating with brands rather than bricks and mortar. And, and when I speak to people in this space, people working in this space, what, what you sense is 
uh, they're almost on a crusade, you know, a moral duty. They really understand the implications of money laundering and, and you know, the fact that, it, you know, as you said in the outset, there are huge, um, huge quantities of funds that are flowing through the financial system, all gained illicitly, you know, I said, people trafficking, drug dealing, uh, terrorist financing. And the people that work in this space, it, it feels like they're on a crusade to, to, to kind of really make an in, in, a difference. And that permeates through the bank. And I think more and more I'm seeing this kind of, you know, the ethics and the moral duty, not just to comply, but to really, you know, uh, um, bring back, I, I say that loosely, but, but you know, really bring the, the ethical element and the moral element into, into banking and, and bringing that to the fore. Joe, make this real for person on the street for me. Um, people talk about um, terrorist financing. People talk about drugs. People talk about crime, human trafficking. These are very jargony words. What What is the actual impact to society here? And, and what are organizations supposed to do to, to stop this? Oh, it's huge. It's uh, categorically people exploiting other people for for profit, right? We have crimes of profit. And I think one of the fascinating things about AML is, you know, you can go after specific crimes with specific tactics, or you can try to make them generally less profitable and, and choke off the flow of funds within those, those criminal enterprises. Uh, that's what AML is all about. It's one of the most effective tools we have to broadly fight financial crime and fight crimes uh, of exploitation. Uh, and it's practiced, as Adam says, by a lot of great people in the financial industry. It's it's just a fascinating industry from the perspective that you have really an unsung hero of the financial industry that's working to keep our society safe and keep the industry safe and uh, is, is often doing this work uh, without a lot of recognition. So. Well, that's the thing. Would I be wrong in saying that banks are sort of a little bit like the police of money in that they have to enforce a lot of the rules, they have to catch the bad guy. Sure, once they catch something they suspect to be wrong, they then have to take that to law enforcement to, for law enforcement to go prosecute it. But that doesn't look unlike the police. They catch the bad guy and then take them to court. Uh, that's that's a big role, and except. If they get it wrong, the police don't get fined. If the banks get it wrong, they get fined. Um, and you know there are some big, big numbers involved there. Uh, Jessica, as you describe this to friends, family, why did you choose to work in anti-money laundering? What drew you to this subject? So for me, um, I'd love to say it was you know the social change, it was, you know all of the issues around you know helping people. For me, it's about solving problems. But I think it's really, really critical to remember the consequences. So when we're looking to solve problems around money laundering and all different types of financial crime, when we're tweaking controls or reconfiguring a system, we often forget what the consequences are. And that's, you know, what the individual person might feel, you know, that individual person that's lost all of their life savings from fraud, which have then been laundered through the system. Um, and also things like, uh, you know, if you've got bribery happen happening, you have complete economic instability, weakening of democratic institutions. There are so many consequences in terms of financial crime. So our roles in this industry are, are really key. So, Adam, talk me through what have been the big changes you've seen in the last five years. We mentioned some of the fines, but what are what are banks doing? What's happening with law enforcement? What are the changes really, really going on? Yeah, I, I think a couple of things I'd say. I think from a regulatory standpoint, it's clear regulators are getting more scrutinous. Fines are bigger. You can see that in the data points. Um, I think in terms of regulatory change, there's lots of noise about things coming on the horizon. EBA are revising the 
AML framework, FinCent, are making similar noises. I think one of the things I would say kind of most impactful about the industry over the last five years is really that rapid march of digitalization. I think accelerated by COVID. Um, bricks and mortar are less of a thing. Uh, volumes are increasing. And with that is the attack surface area. Perfect. And Joe, speak to me about the digital world uh, from uh, an attack surface area standpoint, but also from a response standpoint. It, well, we've seen an explosion of investment in fintech and cryptocurrency from the beginning of 2021 through today. Uh, from a digital perspective, it's it's a whole new world, right? Uh, digital assets are much more trackable uh, than you know your traditional paper-based currencies. And that results in new measures for AML. It results in new opportunities for tracking. We see a lot of cryptocurrency exchanges working on the exchange of information between themselves. And uh, I think it is very promising. Now, of course, there are technologies designed to evade that. That's another topic. Uh, but uh, I think the future of digital currency is very promising in the AML world. Yeah, and I think it's an important point. People don't realize that whilst the banks are the police of money, the way that they do their investigative work is reliant on other banks. And Jessica, maybe you could help me understand, you know, what are the challenges facing being a bank or a fintech in today's market trying to prevent money laundering? I think you've actually picked up on one of the biggest structural flaws in the whole financial crime framework. Using that term, kind of the banks as the police is, is one of the biggest structural issues. Uh, because obviously we don't have access to all of the intelligence that are coming from individual banks, individual payments firms, all across the industry. That goes to your law enforcement agencies. It goes to your financial intelligence units. It, we don't see the whole networks behind all of these different financial crimes. And I think at its very heart, that's a real challenge. We're not the police. Ultimately, it should be down to law enforcement. Our role as financial institutions is really about providing good quality intelligence to law enforcement. It's law enforcement that then um, needs to sort of work perhaps to you know, take that intelligence um, and kind of work to solve the, the crimes in the background. And for people that have never worked in an AML department, how is that intelligence collected? What evidence are they doing and, and what are they doing with it? Yeah, absolutely. So it all boils down to filing suspicious activity reports, which ultimately come from, you know, a bank or an institution will need to build up their own internal controls to be able to spot suspicious activity. Um, so making sure you've got good transaction monitoring, good KYC processes, good onboarding to identify the risks associated with your customers, and then monitor their kind of behavioral patterns throughout the course of the relationship with you. Um, so once you're kind of identifying risks at that onboarding stage and then identifying risks throughout the course of the relationship, you should then be able to spot suspicion by looking at what's normal and comparing it to the risks that you're spotting. So Joe, um, mark my homework here. Um, KYC, know my customer. I'm onboarding them. I want to know who you are. I want to know your address. I want to know your identity. I want to connect you to a legal person. Transaction monitoring. I'm going to watch the transactions you make. And if you do something crazy, I kind of know who it is so I can report them to police. Is that the best deterrent we have um, available to us today? And are there other things emerging that that you start to see that, that could potentially show signs of where this, this industry could go? I think there are two. Uh, one is behavioral-based monitoring. So looking beyond just the transactions at the behaviors of an account 
And that could be things like making changes to the account, where you're signing in from, devices, uh, and uh, messaging. So when, when payment apps, if I use Venmo or something like that, I can send a message along with the payment. Uh, that content has been useful for spotting potentially illicit behavior. Uh, the second is what we referred to earlier about digital currencies. Uh, digital currencies leave a footprint. They leave a, a trail on the blockchain of their past transactions. You can see where they've been. Uh, there are evasive technologies uh, to obscure that, but for the most part, uh, AML professionals are able to track that back and, and infer from the pattern of transactions leading up to um, you know, the present time, uh, what's happened with that currency and where it's been. So those, those two are, I think, emergent uh, technologies and practices that are changing AML. It's not just follow the money, it's follow the behavior. And I think the, the both of those combined is, is really, really powerful. Um, do we, just to double down on that, do we have a bit of a data quality problem in the traditional financial system? Because I, th I think about what a bank has is, is they can only see their customers and what other fintechs or banks tell them is true. There isn't this one global transaction record that they can just go follow the money on like, like exists in crypto. And, and also, where did that data come from? Is it good enough? Is it clean enough? Is there a data quality problem or is the problem somewhere else? I think generally, yes, uh, particularly in, in parts of the industry that have been around for a while. Uh, they're just dealing with legacy technologies, right? We have uh, on-premise on technologies and servers, fragmented data systems. You think about the history of banking, it's, it's one of uh, a lot of mergers and acquisitions. So when uh, banks roll up into conglomerates, they're dealing with old data sources from uh, the different companies that they've acquired. It just makes it very difficult to get a holistic picture of the subject of an investigation. Uh, and as a result, compliance professionals, yeah, they, they spend quite a bit of their time just querying for data, finding it and bringing it together in a place where they can actually infer uh, about the activity. I once spoke to a compliance professional who shall remain uh, nameless and, and the so shall the organization that they worked at, talking about the challenge of, uh, as an organization, if you brought somebody through KYC when they first opened a bank account in their teenage years and they're now in their 60s and 70s, uh, if you haven't re-KYC'd them, like, how do you know any of that information is still true? Um, and lots of organizations are now doing things to, to, to try and fix that. But there are also, how do I know the, the new organization I'm acquiring has, has the level of standards that, that I do? And, and so th this is a difficult data quality challenge. And um, Adam, Joe spoke about legacy technology there in, in a lot of ways. Are you seeing people starting to move away from on-premise to different types of technologies? And, and how are they? how's that transition working for, for organizations? Listen, it's, it's an area of growth that, that we're seeing at Terminus. We, we're doing quite a lot of investment in cloud software as a service in acknowledgement that, that the, the benefits that delivers in terms of scalability, resilience. Um, the, the thing that I would say, and, and you know, um, Terminus ostensibly is core banking provider and we provide services around that core banking. Um, progressively, we've seen people move to cloud adoption, get over the hurdles, that the, 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 the kind of barriers that uh, prevented them from doing so previously. But in the financial crime space, we're particularly seeing a want to move to that model where, it, where it, you know, um, it's a fast a path to modernizing systems, uh, to bringing down those uh, barriers of entry, 
Um, and and I, I would term it as such that almost a, a, a want, and I'm interested in what the panel thinks, for this kind of, let's say, you know, necessity of being a banker, being, you know, doing banking, to, to almost a want for that to be commoditized as simple as possible, as, as off the shelf as possible. Um, and I think cloud lends itself to, to that model, you know, turnkey, fast time to discover, you know, discover, provision and, and consume financial crime services. So, so um, yeah, definitely, uh, we're seeing an appetite for that. And, and equally, you know, uh, as a company, we're, we're uh, invested in building that out as capability. Jessica, what are your thoughts? Are you seeing similar trends? I think this is actually really interesting in terms of data quality, because yes, data can be in a terrible state. Yes, particularly with um, larger institutions, but it's not out of, you can solve that. You can clean up the data um, and get your data sets in order to deploy new solutions to try and solve this challenge. However, even when you have that clean data, there are still probably going to be issues with your data. Um, so it's, again, what sort of models or machine learning you're putting on top of it, uh, what rule sets you're deploying on top of that clean data to make sure you've mitigated the other issues like um, uh, things like discrimination issues or other kind of things that we need to think about when we're deploying financial crime controls. You know, is your data considering different in, um, inclusivity issues, those kind of things. So yeah, data is an issue and it's a challenge to deploying new technologies. But even when your data is clean, there might be still, still some challenges in terms of effective financial crime management. And in terms of effective financial crime management, Jessica, there's also the tipping off rule. Do you want to just briefly describe what that is for our audience and how that impacts um, financial institutions. Yeah, absolutely. So um, if you are dealing with suspicious activity and perhaps you've spotted something that's an issue and on someone's transactions, you look into it and you think, yes, this is actually suspicious. I'm going to file this to the financial intelligence unit as a suspicious activity report. You will have to sort of block that account. Um, and it's a challenge because that customer might come back to you and say, why have you blocked my account? What's the issues? I want to move these funds. Um, and it's down to the institution. They are not allowed to tip that customer off of a potential investigation or a filing that might be happening in terms of their act, uh, their sort of activity. Um, so, yeah, we can't tip people off of any potential investigation or any information that's gone to the financial intelligence units. And there's a risk that Whilst it was suspicious, it was also perfectly legitimate. So you could be wrong. Somebody could be not able to make a rent payment or not able to do live day to day. And there are all these consequences. And, and I know organizations go to great lengths to make sure that's that's not the case. Adam, you wanted to jump in there briefly as well. I'm just going to, uh, you know, talking about data quality, I wonder if there's a bit of an elephant in the room in as much as, you know, every bank's view, I, I, I Totally, you know, take on the points about quality and access and siloed data uh, 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 challenges um, that legacy systems exacerbate. But but every bank is looking at the world fairly myopically, right? It's looking at its data and money flows all over the world, all through the financial system. Um, you know, it, it's, I, I, I think it's probably something you're going to bring up, but it, it's something uh the world hasn't quite navigated yet and it feels like you know there's lots of uh, talk about it appetite tech sprints hackathons you know they're playing with the idea um i kind of wonder if you know we're talking about where 
AML's going, whether that's going to be the kind of game-changing watershed moment uh, uh, that, that really will change the game. And, and obviously data is, is at the heart of everything. Well, Joe, post uh, sort of 2008 and then indeed post some of the big fines uh, that came out in 2011 onwards, we saw uh, financial institutions hired lots and lots of compliance officers and, and AML specialists, but did they necessarily take the time to go look at the underlying systems and data quality? I spoke to one senior executive, uh, C-suite executive at a bank who said, uh, there are so many things that the bank uh, has to do uh, that are you know, not, not revenue generating. They're a cost of doing business. They're a part of being in the business. And they're not necessarily specialists at, they're just another organization doing it. So are there specialists out there and, and how, do you, how do you start to move towards those specialists? It's uh, to your point, it can represent anywhere from two or 3% up to 10% of the operating expenses for a financial institution to uh, maintain regulatory compliance. Uh, those are industry stats from surveys of, of many banks and credit unions. And are there specialists at it? Uh, there should be. Um, I, I'm a believer as the founder of Hummingbird that there should be technology companies that are, are focused on this. Uh, there are many good staffing firms and things like that as well that are specialists in investigation work. Uh, I think Jessica Fintrell, uh, you're a specialist, obviously, in uh, financial crime policies and procedures. Um, and so I, I believe that there is an industry of, of specialists in, in uh, you know, focused on this problem, but there needs to be more, if anything. Alrighty, thank you, Joe. We are just going to take a quick pause here whilst we hear from our sponsor. Did you know that the majority of people are investing in cryptocurrency through a taxable account when they could be using an IRA, that's an individual retirement account, and avoiding or deferring those taxes? With Alto Crypto IRA, you can invest in crypto without tax headaches, creating a free account in only minutes. Choose from over 150 coins and invest with as little as $10. That's right, only 10 bucks. No setup charges and no account fees. To open an Alto Crypto IRA with as little as $10, just go to altoira.com forward slash insider. That's A-L-T-O-I-R-A.com forward slash insider. So we're going to go out on a limb here and assume that you're enjoying this podcast. We're also going to assume that, like us, you're a fintech nerd and that our podcasts, live events, video series and documentaries keep you tapped into everything that's happening across fintech and connected to the fintech community. So if you're interested in creating content that informs and entertains, then you should definitely chat to our media team and get in touch on sponsors at 11fs.com. All right, let's start looking at, at some of those solutions. We were talking a little bit about data quality um, before the uh, break, and we were also talking a little bit about sort of specialists. Um, but really, what do you see, Jessica, when you walk into a financial institution? What does good practice look like? What, is, what, is, what does great really look like for AML? I haven't yet seen great. I am willing, I'm ready to see great. Um, but the, the big things that we look at when we first go into an institution is first to question their risk-based approach. Because we've heard about the risk-based approach for so many years in um, AML and anti-financial crime, but nobody's really, really getting to the heart of what a risk-based approach is. And this is looking at what your specific risks are with your customer base, your product, and your particular challenges 
and deploying specific controls to deal with those specific risks. So a lot of people will implement a particular solution thinking it's going to solve all their problems and it doesn't. They need to really think about what their specific challenges are before they go and implement something. Um, and this is something that we're seeing the regulator continue to push in the UK and obviously um, elsewhere as well. And then on top of this, we want to see more kind of dynamic risk assessment. Um, and we're going to move into things like perpetual KYC modeling, um, better ongoing monitoring of behaviors that I think Joe was mentioning earlier. So I think some of the things we really want to see going forward will be dynamic risk assessments, perpetual checking of customer profiles to really start to pick out the risks as they appear dynamically instead of reactive. Yeah, well, it, the temptation can be to A, react, but also de-risk entire sectors and just say, okay, if it's in charities or gaming or that whole sector is all bad and we just won't touch it, which can be financially exclusionary. Uh, it can be discriminatory. Um, and yet the organizations are sort of allowed to do it because it's seen as a commercial decision as much as anything. And uh, actually this de-risking thing is is kind of a very blunt instrument and arguably an ineffective instrument for, for actually managing the material risk, Jessica. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in February 2021, uh, FATF, the global kind of standard set of the Financial Action Task Force, they launched a project to look at de-risking. So people were deploying their principles in a way that left out people from the banking sector, which is a real challenge and not what we're trying to do with our anti-financial crime controls. We're trying to spot criminals, not keep people out of the banking sector. Um, so they, they've, I think they've finished there and concluded their, their assessment on that. And they're now starting to look at how to adjust their principles to prevent the de-risking from happening. And it's certainly something that we'll see going forward, how we deal with inclusivity uh, better in our sector. Adam, we saw this with the recent uh, sort of sanctions uh, on, on Russia and everything that happened around Ukraine, that uh, organizations are left to interpret uh, certain rules, certain adding to lists, certain sanctions, uh, and how far that should or should not extend. Um, taking the side of the, the financial institutions for a second, uh, given the size of the fines, how difficult do you think it is in those organizations to really take some principles, something being added to a list and understand where do you stop, where do you start, um, and, and how best do you go about that? Yeah, I th I th it's, it's not easy. Um, I, think, I think to be crude and brutal and apply the letter of the law is easy, but that comes with cost. It comes with cost around customer experience. It comes with operational cost of you know, trawling through alerts. And that, that's really where the challenge lies here. It, it's calibrating systems and process so that, you know, this the raft of new entities on sanction lists, you know, this big foreign policy program. Uh, yeah, banks are, banks are nervous. They need to comply. The, 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 the fines make them nervous. Um, but at the same time, they need to do that without impacting the business. And I, I think those, those two things customer experience, which is, you know, a big part of the battleground now, whatever the bank, particularly in, you know, the, the Neo space, the Challenger Bank, uh, you know, where they're making these big promises about customer experience. Um, and then just, just the cost of running the business. I think Joe alluded to, you know, cost of compliance uh, uh, earlier. It's a big, big chunk of operational cost. Um, and when you know, low yield environment, profitability is low, uh, th this, this makes a big difference. And, and, you know, conversations I've been in uh, as recently as this week where the, 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 our clients are struggling to find, find people to, to manage the, a, a new percentage of alerts that are coming out of uh, financial traffic. 
having to rally very quickly to, to manage that. And then he's called Jessica by the sounds of it and, and, and Adam and Joe and get, get the dream team in, make it happen, folks. That's what we're about. Um, Joe, give me some, give me some hope for the future here. I mean, uh, Adam mentioned tech sprints earlier. You mentioned some of the principles we see in crypto. How do you see policymakers to, to Jessica's point trying to tweak the rules? Do you see things heading towards a more data driven approach or is this fiddling at the edges? Do we need something more serious? No, I, I, I'm an optimist about it. Uh, I believe it takes a lot of time, right? Uh, policymaking sits at the intersection of, of business and the financial industry, policy, civil rights, uh, you know, a variety of complex issues. So it's very slow to change uh, or can be. Uh, but there, there are people on all sides of the equation that are interested in moving it forward. Uh, regulators are interested in moving it forward, policymakers, uh, you know, and, and so I'm, I'm bullish on the progress. I think it's a, a process of discussion and debate. Uh, you see that happening now in the cryptocurrency industry. Uh, I think the remarkable thing about the moves forward in the cryptocurrency industry from regulatory bodies is that, you know, crypto emerged in 2009. It's, it's 2022 as we're recording and, and some of that is still playing out. Uh, but uh, there are a lot of great people and a lot of bright minds uh, on on all sides of that trying to move it forward. So uh, I'm I remain optimistic that it will it will get better. I do worry about copy and paste uh, sort of uh, rulemaking from from what worked in the analog world to to the crypto world, especially after uh, the European Parliament looks like it's passed rules on what they call unhosted wallets, um, essentially. Uh, applying the travel rule um, to any amount of any transaction for any wallet and sort of saying that if it's not done on a central exchange, it must be fully transaction monitored and subject to KYC, which would, to my mind, as as somebody who looks at the software, be a little bit like asking anybody who owns a leather wallet to have everything that moves in and out of that leather wallet um, fully subject to KYC and AML. There is a point at which that just becomes entirely impractical and uh, also not achieving the what it was intended to, which is preventing financial crime, which is also happening at the much more sophisticated end of the market. But forgive me for, for editorializing for a second there, because I do think that there is hope elsewhere on, on the horizon. Um, Jessica, to, to, to follow Joe's point, as, as you look to the future, what, what gives you cause for optimism? I think we're seeing um, regulators slowly edging in the right direction. So it's that combination of... Um, sort of accepting technology and innovation. So the FCA, I think they announced yesterday another kind of crypto-based tech sprint, which is great. Um, and they've really um, embraced uh, different technologies and digital identity technologies and all of these things. So it's, it's looking like it's moving in the right direction. We've also got new frameworks in terms of the digital um, identity and trust framework, which is a really interesting initiative, not quite there yet, um, where we're thinking about, okay, how do we package people's identity um, and allow them sort of um, have their own ownership over their digital identity attributes and those kind of things, which is great, good moves forward. Um, and also, I think this piece around inclusivity is really important. I'm probably har- harboring it slightly too much, but it's really important to get that balance right between stopping criminals and allowing people access to the banking system. So I think that combination of um, inclusivity, but also technology, we're probably going to be going in, in a good direction. 
you mentioned something there alluding to self-sovereign identity or, or the ability to allow people to take their own data with them between organizations rather than logging it in one centralized place. Um, my data would follow me around the internet and I would permission some other entity to see it should I wish to take borrowing for them or something along those lines. Really encouraging to see people start to look at things that come out of the privacy world, but that can also be used by the, the law enforcement world. Adam, what gives you uh, cause for optimism? Yeah, I, 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 I think there is cause for optimism. I, I think, you know, AML has historically been a game of cat and mouse as, you know, banks get smarter, so do the bad guys. Um, I think, uh, you know, as, as um, was just alluded to, the, di the direction, the general direction of travel uh, from the regulators is, is encouraging. I think some of the technology, we mentioned cloud, is a fast path to modernizing systems. I think, you know, I mentioned earlier about the kind of elephant in the room, if you like, around data sharing. You know, every bank's got that that myopic view. It's the regulators that have got the oversight that, that can piece together the picture and, and probably emphasized by the FinCEN files event not so long ago. I think that, for me, you know, uh, there are moves to, to bring... Uh, data sharing together to, to for, for, for um, uh, you know, there really to be some game changing differences made in this area. Um, I, I think that, for, that that's definitely, you know, technology plus uh, the way regulation is rolled out, plus the ability to do some form of data sharing, I, I think lends itself to be quite game changing. I, I was reading there was a, an exercise in Estonia recently, they called it the IML Bridge, a, a small pilot. I think four or five banks run this pilot, um, and in a very short space of time, they uncovered uh, quite a significant uh, sum of money laundering uh, just from this kind of uh, uh, data sharing exercise. So, um, yeah, I, th I think there's there's cause for optimism. Um, I think things are going in the right direction. Um, I think there, there's likely to be one or two things that happen that become quite game changing. Um, but all of these things take time, as as, as Joe just said. You know, <laughs> policy moves slowly. Policy is glacial, but it's moving. Uh, technology is moving very, very quickly and gives us calls for optimism. But it seems like uh, the frameworks are being built and people are really starting to think about data, cloud adoption, uh, and maybe even self-sovereign identity or, or decentralized identity, which could be hugely exciting. So let's start to think about this stuff and, and, and really uh, see if we can solve one of the biggest problems uh, in, the, uh, in the financial world. Uh, as I think about it, it's anti-money laundering being as rife as it is feels like it should be one of those things that's everyday headline news alongside uh, the fact that we are slowly killing ourselves as a species by warming the planet. Um, but the, these things sort of fade into the background and become operational. And sadly, we, we need to keep focusing on them. And if we change how AML works, we could have a real massive outsized impact on people's lives. So um, that wraps up today's discussion. Uh, thank you so much, everybody, for joining me. Um, I want to ask very quickly, where can people find out more about you uh, and what you get up to with your company? So I'm going to start with Jessica. Sure. The best way to find me is probably on uh, LinkedIn. So Jessica Kath on LinkedIn. But Fintrail, we're fintrail.com. Um, all our team members are on there. So you can always click through and, and chat with any of us. Fantastic. Adam? Yeah, terminus.com. I think I'm on there, but you can see uh, what we're working on, um, particularly around financial crime space. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah, don't hesitate to, to reach out. Fantastic. Joe? 
Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Joe Robinson, and you can find Hummingbird at hummingbird.co. We write about some of these issues in the blog section of our website. So, Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, everybody. And you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or at 11FS.com. And if you like what you heard, listeners, remember to go ahead and subscribe. Uh, it really helps other people find the show and leave a review. Just go ahead and leave us that review. What did you learn today? What did you like? What did you enjoy? Uh, thank you so much, everybody, and bye for now.